episode 61 with urban designer and architect Justin Garrett Moore. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I'm your host, Dario Calmis, an artist, writer, brand consultant, and generally curious fellow. And each week we bring you a conversation from the pool of black genius to inspire, engage, and help you unleash your own imagination. Today's episode is with urban designer and architect Justin Garrett Moore. Justin is the planner behind several urban design and planning projects in New York City, including the Greenpoint Williamsburg Waterfront, Hunters Point South, and the Brooklyn Cultural District. Justin has received numerous awards for his work, including the Champion of Architecture Award from the AIA, the Letters Award in Architecture from the American Academy of Arts, and was named to the United States Commission of Fine Arts by current U.S. President Joseph Biden. Justin's work encompasses housing and community development, place and open space design, historic preservation, public art, monuments, and civic engagement. Justin was born and raised in Indianapolis, Indiana, in a segregated neighborhood. Growing up, Justin realized that access to public space and recreational areas like parks weren't available in communities for people that looked like him. Frustrated by the lack of access to public spaces in his own neighborhood, Justin developed an interest in the urban landscape. He enrolled in the University of Florida's architecture program and later attended Columbia University's Graduate School of Architecture, Planning, and Preservation, earning a degree in urban design. Throughout his career, Justin has worked at the city, national, and international level. He was the executive director of the New York City Public Design Commission under former mayor of New York City, Bill de Blasio, founded Urban Patch, a family-run social impact organization in his native Indianapolis, and also develops real estate in Kigali, Rwanda. Currently, Justin is centering his efforts around philanthropy, public space, and place-based initiatives as the inaugural program officer for the Humanities in Place program at the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Yeah, I can't keep up either. In today's episode, Justin educates us on the questions we should be asking about our neighborhoods. He shares how to find your voice while highlighting the important role Black and Brown people can play in the world of philanthropy. Today's episode will be full of gems, so make sure to share your favorite moment with us over on Twitter and Instagram at Black Imagination. You can also view this episode and catch up on others by visiting and subscribing to our YouTube channel, The Institute of Black Imagination. And you can find this and more content over on IBI Digital at blackimagination.com. And without further ado, the exceptional Justin Garrett Moore. Oh, yeah. Turning the microphone on, usually a good start. Um, thank God. Um, so, Mr. Justin Garrett Moore, I am so happy to finally have you here on the Institute of Black Imagination. You are a wealth of so much information and experience, and I can't wait to share that with everyone. So, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. And I know it took us a minute, but uh, happy that we finally can have uh, kind of a more open conversation, can reach some other folks, hopefully. 
Absolutely, even though we live down the street from each other. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, still on Zoom, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so to begin, who would you like to dedicate today's conversation to? Um, I'll say that I'll, I'll dedicate it to all of the people that we should know, but have been robbed of the opportunity to know them. Uh, people in our communities and black communities in particular, um, there's been this ongoing willful harm, erasure, uh, and loss, um, that, that clearly impacts all of us and, and the world. And so, uh, I'm always just mindful of, of that. Um, uh, my father does a lot of kind of genealogy work and he's sort of constantly searching for more about, uh, ancestors and in, in the family. And once you kind of learn about them, um, uh, it, it's like power. Um, mm. and, and so I just think that there's so much power that is still out there, uh, in, in our histories that, that all of us can mine and share. So I dedicate it to, to all of those. Amen. Amen. And may this conversation be an ancestral conversation Ooh, yeah. <laughs> to help empower yeah. those in the future, you know, yeah. um, you know, and that's actually a really great place to begin. Um, and just thinking about placemaking and what does it mean to find our bodies in space? Like, what should citizens, what questions should we be asking about the spaces we inhabit? Yes, so many layers to that, that question uh, to first sort of unpack space and place a little bit and that there are all of these layers of things that are shaping our experiences and our interactions. Uh, everything from environment, right? The temperature, the, the quality of the air, uh, to things that we have created and shaped, right? Uh, the sort of constant communication uh, that we're trying to have with one another places actually one version of that, right? You know, you go to uh, a place that's meant for exchange, like a market, right? And, and we humans somehow shape the space to do that, to communicate to each other, you know, exchange. Uh, places to be kind of thoughtful and quiet, right? So all, all of these things are sort of layers to space that we have to acknowledge the power that, that, that it has. Um, so people, you know, sort of being in, in their, their world, their existence, just acknowledging that, that the place is, is a part of you. So it, it is important uh, to, to pay sort of attention and, and to look for all of those layers about what a place is telling you. The other uh, uh, kind of piece that is related to that is that uh, there's a, an indigenous uh, saying, Wakaka um, uh, Waka people that were sort of in, in the Pacific Northwest, what we call the Pacific Northwest. You would say that a place is a story happening many times. And so the idea that when you're in a space, reading the space, kind of understanding what happened there, like what that place's story is, what that space's story is, is something that I think is important to 
kind of register that because this this becomes an issue in how, again, we interact with each other. So the more that we sort of know a place's story, the more we can respect that place, we can respect its people, right? all of the, the interactions that have happened there. So that sort of intersection between story, history, right, that carries our cultures and what is built, right, what is visible and tangible, right, putting those together, I think is, is sort of the the um, literacy, let's call it, um, of space that I, I think we need more and more in our society. Yeah, and and just you know to bring it into plain sight, you know, I live in Harlem. I walk out of my door onto you know Morningside Avenue. And I look around and I see, you know, five-story tenement housing and I see, you know, development happening to the West from Columbia University. Um, and, you know, to the South is this commercial corridor of 125th Street. As I look around, how should I be reading this tangible space and what are the stories it's telling me? about those who created it. Yes, I love that. I love that. When um, um, uh, my background's architecture and urban design, and years and years ago, I um, had a great mentor, Moji Barler is her name, so it was in her studio. And she had us at the time um, with, 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 a, with a colleague or classmate, blindfold us, Papu 42nd Street, and say, walk to the water blindfolded. Um, with someone to watch you to make sure you didn't get hit by a car. Right? But the, the, the blindfolding was, was so important because like tapping into the other senses uh, in a more direct way is, is sort of the first step. So it's, it's sort of this process of like not only privileging the, the, the visual, kind of what you would read, uh, what communicates fastest as, as environment, and to tap into sound, smell, and touch, right? So in that process, you sort of learn, like, I have to touch the city. Mm. Mm. So, and, it, and it's, it's a, and, you know, everyone kind of has that, that sort of understanding of, like, touch is a great way to communicate, right? So if you, if you think it's my responsibility to touch the city, <laughs> Uh, I, I, you know, it, it, and, you know, we're taught not to touch, especially pandemic area, right? We touch everything with a cloth. But, but the, the idea that feeling a place is, is multisensory, first of all, is, is key. And I, I think the multisensory can also be kind of uh, in, in kind of the psychological and, and kind of intellectual part of the mind, right? What, what's your multisensory approach to, to reading the space? And so the, the, the layers that are, are there, right, of how the, the street wall, in, in the design field, right, the street wall of 125th Street being continuous, and then there's a moment at Grant Houses where it is no longer continuous, right, uh, because the, the tower in the park housing model sort of breaks the, the street. And so kind of registering that, right? Like, why is there a void there now, right? It allows you to sort of ask questions. What is that space now 
doing? How does it function? Or how does it not function? Right? So you begin to register that there's a fence, right? Mm. Instead of a door. Mm. <laughs> right? And I'm like just walking down the street, right? There's a street and there are doors. People are coming in and out. Well, further down the street, and there's this rebuilding that, that took place, right? That took something away and put something else there in its place with, with kind of a paradigm for how it, people should behave there and replaced what would have been a, a continuity of doors and windows with, you know, iron <laughs> preventing you from accessing a space. So, like, th- those are kinds of things. And, and, you know, you can just say, oh, that's, you know, NYCHA or that's grant houses, right? And you could sort of register and process it that way. Or you can think about why is it <laughs> built this way? Mm. And why is it built that way? Well, it's, it, was, it was to divide, right? The, the public um, housing campuses, there was a, let's call it the white imagination of <laughs> tower in the park housing, of like Corbusier with the hand, you know, and, you know, this is the city, uh, right? They, they're they're uh, very proud of how they've touched the city. Um, you know, that imagination that people should live in this way in the container and then you have the open space that will uh, provide for a, a healthier interaction with their environment, right? Like that was, was a concept that was put in place to sanitize the city, right? To control people like lower income people, people like black and brown people. Uh, in, in different ways, and, and it is that space of, of white imagination that has become um, a, a irreparable harm to so many of these communities. So when you're walking down the street and you see that <laughs> change, that shift, that space, just know that there are so many layers there, right? And so just like that kind of concept that the space should be built and configured a certain way was clearly possible, it means that other ways are, are clearly possible. Mm, I love that. Um, to get to actually just get to cities, like, you know, you exist and have existed, you know, um, in multiple spaces and have approached the urban landscape through multiple lenses, you know, through the worlds of architecture, city planning, you know, urban development, design, development at, you know, local, national, international scale. Um, What is it about the city and the built environment that continues to um, enthrall you? And and, and I posit it um, through the lens of you as an artist and the city uh, and space as your practice. And so why the medium Mm. of the built environment? Yeah, I love putting it that way, the medium of the built environment. Um, and, and it is a, a kind of a form of, of practice. Um, and it's, you know, it's a very slow <laughs> practice, right? Like, you know, the, the thing is like, you know, the, the city changes very fast and but also almost glacially slow at the same time. And it, it has to, that's the medium, right? It's both a fast and a very slow medium. 
<laughs> that, mm. that you're trying mm. to navigate like at, at the same time, right? It's like, you know, if you're a painter and the viscosity of the paint changed, like while you're painting, uh, <laughs> kind of, um, because of the political processes and capital, I mean, there, there are lots of things kind of flowing your way. So it's like, that's of interest to me, right? That it, it really operates in like all of these different ways. Um, uh, I'm, I, I think I'm sort of fascinated by difference. And so I would say that's like the kind of the driving interest or question that I, I have. And so those of us that are in architecture, design, uh, urbanism, built environment work, Right, our our business is that uh, cities change, right? Mm-hmm, that the built mm-hmm, environment mm-hmm. change, right? That humans, you know, for whatever kind of constituent set of reasons, are constantly like you know remaking the the ant farm, right? Um, and so you know the fact that this change is happening is like it's just fascinating and interesting to me. But then there's also kind of when you're in an, uh, an environment in a city and any kind of a community and you're traversing it, right? If you're, you have some kind of mobility that you can traverse it, you also recognize that there are all these different kinds of places, right? And that people, mm. that there are people and decisions that, that led to that. And, and that's just very interesting and powerful to me. And so my, my work in, in, in urbanism is sort of constantly driven by this question, how, do, how does difference register? in the city. How does difference mm. impact me personally, right, my community, kind of globally? Um, and and it, it just has every possible scale of question, right? This bench is designed in a way that it's comfortable, or it can be designed in a way that is comfortable for people uh, that are only sitting upright, right? It can be designed that it's comfortable only for people that don't need a back uh, to sort of support themselves, right? So it could be that small of a scale, or it could be the scale of the way that we build produces a certain amount of carbon that makes it hotter and hotter, and now there are airport tarmacs buckling in, in northern Europe, right? <laughs> so like that, like that whole range of scale is something that we're able to constantly like you said, play with, right? It's like, it's the medium that we get to work with. Yeah. It's, I, I, I love the, the scale of design and, you know, I, I also look at it through this lens of this continuum, right? This almost kind of like fractal nature, yes. you know, from, from the genesis of the language uh, and the des- and the syntax that we speak, right, as a way of design and speaking about reality, you know, to you know a park bench, and it's and it's interesting because what I love about this space is is the questions that it proffers, yes. um, because underneath it has all been decisions, right, and so there is a why to everything that we witness. So if you're talking about something as, you know quotidian as a park bench, there was a series of decisions that created the design of that and the ways in which design can kind of obfuscate its intentions. You know, so you have a park bench that is not 
completely open and long. You know, it doesn't have a back, but it's a park bench that, you know, every 12 to 16 inches is uh, an interrupt- you know, an armrest, <laughs> right? right? <laughs> yep. But it's an interruption that is designed to look like it's for comfort, but it's actually designed to keep homeless exactly. people from laying down, right? And so, you know, or, you know, you go to lower Manhattan and now every skyscraper, you know, is partitioned with bollards bollards, right you know around so for for listeners listening bollards are those kind of like steel cylindrical um masses let's just say that usually Mm -hmm. that's how they're designed Mm -hmm. that surround buildings to keep you know cars from running into them um or you know to protect from terrorist threats and so you know it's 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 so it's it's understanding that everything has a reason and then you know asking you know, the why. But, you know, I remember when we first met and the thing that fascinated me the most about you was your, you know, your kind of practical uh, and pragmatic lens in thinking about city, right? You know, I come from a place of like high emotion and you're like, no, but this just makes the most sense. Um, And we had a conversation about, you know, um, I think we were speaking about like Atlantic Terminal in oh. Brooklyn, which is one of the <laughs> one of the you know most used transit hubs in the country, right. actually. And I was speaking about you know an older black woman you know who has a brownstone above Atlantic Terminal, and there is the city trying to use eminent domain in order to take her brownstone. And you know, for my lens, I'm like, well. But she's what I'm. I'm. I'm attached to her story. Right? right. This is a a black woman who has achieved and overcome and pushed to educate in order to manifest this dream of a brownstone, mm-hmm. that a place that she can call her own. Mm-hmm. And you're like, tear it down. <laughs> we, need to, <laughs> we need to build a tower right. that's completely selfish. So how do you? <laughs> how how can <laughs> which you know, just cut me to the bone. <laughs> um, and so how can we think about this? Like, what does it mean to live um, in community um, and balance the dreams at, at and balance dreams at human scale? Right. Yeah, and it, it's, it's you know, it, it, it's very funny because that definitely throws people off, right? It's like, how could you, like, you know, be, be for the people? But it's like, but it, I mean, that's exactly the question, right? Is one of at, at sort of what scale of responsibility and collectivity and, and kind of understanding are, are, are you working within? And so, you know, when I came out of grad school and, and started working directly for, for city government, uh, right? For, like literally for the people. And so in that process, you sort of go to a lot of meetings, you go out in communities and you meet and you talk to people and you get more and more uh, sort of laden with multiple stories, right? So yeah, there, mm. there's the one story and there's val- and just and the same kind of connectivity and empathy and, and alignment and value kind of found, find with that. But then let's say you have another compelling story and another compelling story and another connected story that may actually be uh, you know, kind of in, in a, a holistic sense, one that, that requires more action, right? Or more engagement, right? Some horrible things happen to people and it's like there's a responsibility to actually intercede, right? 
Um, so I kind of had that perspective from having, you know, from in my early 20s, it being my job to like listen to all of the different things that people want and need from their city. And it's a, and it's a lot of different things. And so like that suddenly becomes a different frame to, to think through questions and space and decisions and, and tough decisions like should this little three-story cute brownstone go to make room for a big tower and you know it, it could um, uh, you know lead to other conversations right like what would be the adequate com- compensation for someone like that who has built their life and has something that is valuable to the society what should they get for that and so that's a different conversation, right? But it, assuming that that conversation happens, then it could open up opportunities, right? So on that, you know, theoretical spot where that one lady's brownstone is, there is a major redevelopment that occurred and you have much needed uh, affordable housing stock that has hundreds if not thousands of families now that have their story about living at that corner, right? Into the future, right? And from a global sense, rather than having lots of people in little three-story buildings using up all the resources, there are other ways that are more responsible uh, environmentally, right, to live. More responsible in terms of mixing of incomes in one community instead of segregation of income. So it's, it's just a different scale question. Um, but I, I think that, again, that multivocality of stories, like being able to kind of hold and value that is, is what sort of drives that, that way of being kind of pragmatic <laughs> uh, while, while, while acknowledging the things that are, are very bespoke and rich and individual, right? Uh, they're, they're not pragmatic at all. Um, but, but that's how I sort of process it. Yeah, and I mean, and 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 your answer, I was just like, I mean, okay, yeah, I guess, you know. And <laughs> if you think about it from a level of like sustainability, you know, as you said, like it's it's actually much more. Well, first of all, it's so much more sustainable to have you know this tower of individuals living above a transit hub right. than to have multiple people individually you know, using resources, having the, everybody has the house in Connecticut, yeah, right. the, you know, the auto emissions of the driving, like, like there's actually this larger yeah. kind of conversation or um, uh, solution that it can provide for. Yeah. But like you also have, you know, I mean, let's take it back to Indiana. You know, let's <laughs> yeah, take it back to nice. Indianapolis, yes, yes. Uh, your origin yeah. story. You know, you have, uh, you spoke about your your father uh, earlier, but I understand that there is a history of building mm-hmm. and planning, even in your family. Yes. Um, but even before we get there, tell us a bit about Indianapolis and growing up in this city and the ways in which it began to shape this uh, this curiosity about difference. Yeah. Yeah, so I grew up in in Indianapolis, Hoosier, um, and I grew up in, I mean, it was a wonderful community, uh, a neighborhood called Meridian Kessler. Um, Kessler learned later in life as a famous landscape architect, uh, sort of like like an Olmstead. Anyway, um, the 
growing up, so we lived in this, what we acknowledged or what was sort of framed to us as the inner city, you know, a predominantly black community, uh, predominantly uh, kind of work, either working in middle class community. Uh, and so I grew up in segregation, <laughs> basically. <laughs> you know? And I mean, it's, 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 it's like, it's weird, like, because it was just like my environment, my community and everything, but, but sort of, you know, growing up, like, you know, you had to, you know, when you left the neighborhood, there were white people where if you, you know, they were white, but kind of in the world that we grew up in, it was, it was a black community, it was a black, it was a segregated uh, black world. There was one, na- one white neighbor on the block. Cool guy, but the um, uh, uh, sort of context is sort of growing up in in a black community in a black environment, sort of one one thing. But then at a certain stage in your life, right, you start going other places, and so this is where the difference thing comes in, right? So growing up, uh, there weren't parks, <laughs> you know, in our uh, uh, sort of area, and so we uh, play in what was what we called the coal field. So it was. State fairgrounds were nearby. They had a coal storage yard for way back in the day when people used coal to, to heat things. Um, but they hadn't been used a long time, but it was this big, giant, vacant lot that had, like, all this little kind of coal in it, right? So that was, like, where we went to play was <laughs> what we called the coal field, right? And so then, like, so you get a little older, right? You start going to other neighborhoods, and you go and find like, oh, to neighbors at parks, and it was like, oh, this is like there's grass and trees and, you know, play equipment, you know, things like this is something I'm seeing as a kid. Right. But where would those parks would be in, you know, white or at least whiter communities. Right. And so it is something that, you know, as a child, it's like, OK, we've got like the, the <laughs> what we call the coal field. And then, you know, you would have a neighborhood park. Right. And there was a difference that as a kid I could, could see there. So like that, that's where it's like, it starts registering more and more. Um, and I, you know, and I, I enjoyed the feeling of being in a place that was well invested in, that was green or mm. like had cool buildings. I, you know, I was interested in buildings as a kid, right? So like, oh, that's a cool building and be there versus like, oh, there's a bunch of like vacant houses, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like you, like, you know, you pick it up, right? Uh, and so I just, I, I've always been interested in that, registered it, um, and, and, you know, eventually kind of learned that that's something that you can do personally, professionally, is be a part of that. Um, so that's how I got into to design. Which is wild, but, you know, you, you know, your father, you has this genealogy project, but then your grandfather was also very much involved in kind of design yeah. really urban design yeah. and community building specifically this project called the Flannery houses yes. um it could you talk a bit about that project sure. and the the ways in which the community really came together um in order to create and design the things that it needed yes yes i, I love it and i i always um every time i talked in kind of a, at length about work or the field, I, I make a point to introduce uh, uh, at least the work that, you know, a black leadership of planners, community leaders, urbanists, designers, architects, et cetera, involved in with, with this history of Flanner House. And uh, 
I'll, I'll pause to say that like, there's this idea of the black canon, right? Like what, like the mm. kind of the knowledge of the past of, of people's intelligence and innovation that needs to be more centralized and, and to become things that we all learn about um, and things that, that uh, provide kind of a base for, for a different future, right? A different kind of possible future. And so there's this uh, group, Flanner House. Uh, they were a kind of a more of a social services organization. So think uh, today what we would call like mutual aid uh, is is what they they did quite a, a lot of work in. And and what time is this? I'm sorry. Uh, so they they started in the late 1800s, but uh, they were sort of at their peak and sort of scale in the 1940s and 1950s. So kind of po- post war. Okay. Uh, era was was really when they were kind of fashion. There's an incredible leader, Cleo Blackburn, was the sort of the lead of the organization that was able to kind of see comprehensively what were all the things that the black community, which was a segregated low-income black community in in downtown Indianapolis, needed to you know sort of a survive, but b to thrive, right? To kind of have a, a, a great future. And so uh, my grandfather, uh, who his background was in agriculture and, and food sciences, um, worked for this organization. And what he was doing for that organization was he was uh, effectively kind of the, the Will Allen of his day. He ran a large scale urban agriculture program uh, in inner city Indianapolis for, for Flanner House. And so when they were developing these programs, it was it was because they were responding to all these needs they had in their community. So their community, they had food deserts. They had uh, high incidences of diet-related diseases like diabetes, right? So there are these mm-hmm. things that we still talk about today, food desert, you know, diabetes in black and brown communities, et cetera. So they were still dealing with that then because these, you know, racism isn't new. Um, and so... Uh, they created a, a whole program where my grandfather helped people learn how to grow their own food and, and how to sort of balance their families' lives nutritionally. And so they started with these sort of smaller programs. They call them self-help uh, uh, programs, just to teach people basic skills and to provide kind of basic infrastructure that they needed for healthier lives. And so when they were doing this, they were building all of this kind of knowledge of their community and the community's interactions. And they took it like very, very seriously. They even even got sociologists involved to kind of learn, well, in our community, where is the power and where is the ability and and where are there things that are missing or compromised? And they actually spent the time to like talk to everyone in their neighborhood and kind of understand that while they were designing these programs. And the reason they they did that is because they were looking for like how how can they push to reshape their community right for the better, and so they they found out that there were all these people that wanted to be able to have a nice home. This was a neighborhood that at the time a lot of people didn't have uh, uh, indoor plumbing, for example, um, and so people wanted to be able to improve their homes, and so they developed a, a an entire program to rebuild their neighborhood. And they hired a black architect named Hilliard Robinson. Uh, he was sort of famous for doing housing projects across the country. Um, and in school, you know, if you have a good professor, you'll learn about, about him. 
Uh, but you won't learn about this project, right? You'll learn about projects he did for white, <laughs> you know, uh, people in terms of their imagination for how housing should be done. But the black version of how housing should be done was that families would build their own homes, right? They would get the sort of the support they needed from people in their community that knew how to build. They would get support in terms of kind of pooled financial resources that would be kind of returned to the community. And people built their own homes. They built over 300 homes signed by a black architect in inner city Indianapolis in the 1950s, right? Um, and what's even more sort of compelling, because they had, um, uh, the families built their own homes, they had equity in the homes and they were able to get uh, mortgages. They were able to get FHA mortgages in a time where it was very rare for black people to get FHA mortgages, right? Mm. Right. So people, you know, people that know the histories of kind of discrimination within the housing finance system in the U.S., redlining, et cetera, like the, the kind of the mortgage loans was a big uh, kind of piece of that. And so they were even able to kind of counter the discriminatory, discriminatory financial systems at the time through design, right? Like through kind of how they work together with their community to build these homes. And so it's, it's just incredible because it's, it's literally a story of a black community with black leadership, black design, black innovation that created a whole community, right, of a part of a major city in America, and you never learn about that in school, mm. right? So, you know, it, it, it's a powerful history, but it's, it's, it's really wonderful because, you know, today there's, for example, Habitat for Humanity, for those who don't know, like it's an organization that uh, people can, uh, with volunteers and with uh, homeowners, future homeowners, labor, right, you can lower the cost of, of housing and do it at scale. And so there's a national network through Habitat for Humanity um, that people now have this housing model. Well. This group of black people was doing that 20 years before Habitat even existed, right? Mm. Right. At scale, right? 300 homes is, is large enough to say that it's at scale. So it's a great history and, and uh, you know, I always joke with people, at some point I'm going to write a book about it. Um, but in, in the interim, I just love, uh, you know, helping people see the story. I, I can share with you a link of, a, of an actual video of, of them doing the homes. Um, and it, and the thing to remember it's about it is that they were working on lots of different things, right? Like my grandfather was helping people while they're doing the homes, you know, they're doing the gardens and growing their own food and teaching people how to cook healthier food, right? They're doing uh, work related to uh, uh, people starting their own jobs, right? They had a, a credit union, they had a cooperative grocery store that my grandfather ran, right? Like they're doing these things that are essentials for, for their community and, and thinking comprehensively about it, right? Um, and I, I think that's, again, the thing that ties back to this idea of how we communicate and interact with each other was something that they mm -hmm. invested a lot of their time in, right? Because, I mean, one, because they really had to, but two, I think it was just a certain way of thinking about how you would change your community that's different from the way that is sort of the dominant way, which is, you know, there's a problem, you figure out some kind of framework for how you're going to change it, and some power structure operates, 
and then things are imposed on people and some people live with it or some people don't, right? Like that's, mm. like that's more the dominant model, um, but that was not how they operated, right? They really took the time to learn their community, learn what the needs were, and then sort of allocated their resources and innovation uh, accordingly. I, lo- I love that you posited or position um, the idea of space making um, contemporaneously as the dominant model, right? So it's interesting to think about what this community of Black individuals were doing, you know, in the 40s and 50s um, in relationship to the ways in which we just accept uh, the ways in which space is made. And so, you know, in that kind of rich history and us, you know, in present day being on the other side, and so to speak, like what what are the learnings there? Mm-hmm. Like what are what are the what are the the, the design technologies mm-hmm. that this community created um, that can be implemented into or could solve for maybe some of the major voids mm-hmm. that exist in the, the dominant narrative of building? Yeah, I mean, I I, I think one that. I, I think is starting to change in, in, in the way practice is done, but they, they first did this really connected and rooted way of, of, in the field, what we would call kind of engagement of people, right? Just like basic, basic interaction. So not developing a process just based on how the rules say the process, you know, require the process to be, right? You'd have to go to like a a community meeting or a council member hearing or something like that. So there are those structures. They were working in a much more grassroots way. It was, you know, hey, Sandy, go ask Cheryl if she can come to the meeting tonight. Like, it, it was like, that's how they were working. Like, it's kind of around dinner uh, tables and kitchen counters and those kinds of things. All right, so like that scale of work, of, of saying, okay, well, this has to be kind of interpersonal interaction, I think is something that uh, is very powerful. And, you know, people are starting to, to work that way. Like there are uh, even jobs and positions now for people that just do kind of community relations and, and interaction and planning. But, the, but it's not in the same, um, uh, I think, kind of groundedness and authenticity and purpose that I think that they had, right? Like, they had manifestos, right, Dr- mm. driving their work, right, about, you know, the the health of their community, right, kind of outlining uh, things like rights to opportunity, right? So there are these sort of things driving them that I, I think we don't have in, uh, in the same way um, in, our, in our generation. But... You know, I, I think there's a lot to learn from that kind of social practice of interaction. I think there's also something to learn from what I see is there. Um, it, it was sort of a motivation that their knowledge was really valuable and powerful. Um, mm. Something about this organization, mm. one of the reasons that, like I said, eventually I'll write a book, is that they, they documented just about everything. Right. I can I can find, you know, uh, what my grandfather's uh, uh, kind of time cards were. Right, it was very well documented. Um, and the the 
idea that they were kind of recording their own history, right? Like they, they sort of knew they were making history. Mm. Right. Mm. And, and so like that, that kind of mindset that they were building information and building knowledge that a future generation could benefit from, or that it's important for people to be able to learn and understand what they did. Uh, I, I think that, that, and again, for that time frame. That wasn't necessarily, again, a, a normative thing to do. Um, but I, I think that acknowledgement is really powerful. And I think um, the, the more that when we do work or when we're trying to innovate, that we make a point to share it um, mm. is, is part of knowing uh, that, that you're doing work in a way that's meant to scale, right? It's meant to connect and, and reach more people. Yeah, I, I I find this story super interesting because I think there's, on one hand, you know, it circles back to what you mentioned earlier about what does it mean to have access to one's history mm-hmm. um, okay. and the ways in which it can empower, right? So, mm-hmm. the, yes, the archive, um, but but also like, in the practice of making the actual documentation of, of, of process um, so that it isn't something that is ephemeral, but is something that can be referred to. And then I think thirdly, it speaks to the, um, the active erasure. Yes. Of these histories, right? So what does it mean to create an archive and yet the system, the dominant systems that exist, um, part of their functioning is also the erasure or the the obfuscation or the hiding away of mm-hmm. that information, right? Which keeps a contemporary generation from even and ever understanding like from whence they came right right? the story that they hear about themselves is the story that they've been designed to hear about themselves and that is their only reference point right in the americas it is you know the narrative of slavery and yet there were so many other incredible ways um that black and brown folk were thinking and doing um that we don't see and it's actually a part of what this podcast is, is part of like kind of my, (laughs) my motivation as well is like, you know, we're both from the Midwest, um, you know, and growing up in a very traditional American education system that I excelled in on some level and yet was completely, um, unprepared and it was completely inefficient, uh, for me actually understanding who I am, uh, in the world, but circling back to, you know, you, you know, coming out of Indiana and going to school and then getting into city government, I think it's, it's really amazing. A lot of people don't think about the ways in which policies shape space as well, right? Because it's not just about land. It's not just about, you know, the food, but there are, that there are, um, there are policy architects that are also designing how close that food is to you, you know, whether or not there is a park uh, within a certain radius of where you live and that affects, right, your personhood, your sense of self, even your own like personal well-being. And so, you know, being in the space of city government um, and most recently, you know, in the de Blasio administration um, in New York City, 
as the uh, executive director for the New York Design Commission, like what lens did policy give you in understanding the built environment in cities? Because that's a pretty unique, I think, perspective. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it, yeah. So I worked in in city government for for sixteen years, and the last five of those years were were as a head of head of agency, where you know the policy uh, sort of component of work was was much more kind of central. But you know, it's 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 something that you know I so when I was younger, I kind of saw these sort of differences in in environments, and I actually started in architecture very young young age to start working at an internship in high school and we would go to like the the planning board meetings uh when they were trying to get something approved and and that was you know sort of seeing like exactly like there's someone's kind of discussions and decisions that determine you know whether uh you know my park is going to get improved or not or funding is going to go to housing in this neighborhood versus another and, and so that kind of policy thing is something i was sort of always a little bit curious of. Mm-hmm. And so when I was going into government, it was just really kind of sobering how poorly our system <laughs> works. Um, it like it just doesn't it intentionally doesn't work well, right? So you have decisions being made in the in the political uh, sort of arena that don't have the information or knowledge needed, right? There are kind of people working uh, kind of in their communities directly to sort of build a solution, but uh, they're automatically put in some kind of oppositional relationship with uh, existing regulations. And so the the kind of role in government, in planning and policy in, in city government, where you're, you're literally just trying to shift the rules mm. constantly, right? Like you're pulling the lever to, to see if you can get different outcomes. And so understanding the layers of information and kind of background and research that really need to go into making a policy decision is something that, that I really appreciated having that exposure. Um, you know, one of the projects I worked on kind of over many years at city government was Hunters Point South in Queens on the Queens waterfront. And so that was a project focused on housing affordability, right? Which is the, the big Gordian knot of New York City problems, right? How to get more people affordable housing. And so there it was literally understanding and navigating all the levers, right? The, uh, a policy comes out of Washington, D.C. that says that this certain bracket of housing can get a lot of good kind of uh, federal subsidies or layers, right? And then a law comes out of Albany that says you can do this, that, and the other. And just seeing how, like, literally we're doing our computer models at the time, how things are, like, changing while these these policies are coming out of, you know, Washington and, and Albany and, and even within New York City Hall. And just seeing those kind of changes and levers, like, okay, well, if we shape the building in a different way that changes the cost of construction, we can get more people at this lower income range in the neighborhood as we're building it, Right. Or this new environmental uh, regulation is going to unlock some grant funding, and so we can change our park from, uh, you know, very standard design to something that has a little bit better design, and we're putting that in proximity with 
the lower uh, of income level housing units, right? So you're kind of like doing the, the, the 3D chess a little bit. And it's, it's I mean, it's, it's fun, but it's also very uh, challenging because you're, you're making a lot of kind of difficult choices uh, along the way. But that kind of understanding of, of all of the inputs that, that, that policy has is a way to then say, okay, well, where now can I, you know, pull the levers uh, and, and sort of see what, what kind of alternatives are possible. Uh, and that's where you get into the, the place more when I was in leadership of city government, like really pushing the boundary, right? Okay, this is how things work. This is how things might work better. And I'm going to generate a policy that puts that in place. Right. Um, and so we were able to, to do that in, in different ways with uh, kind of how we require a certain amount of uh, public input in a more robust way through to, uh, you know, really experimenting on how do you get higher quality design and higher quality environments for things like affordable housing and then insist that we actually use those things instead of <laughs> The current uh, model, which costs just as much money, but for a worse result, right? And so rather than leave mm. all of that to market, let's put together a framework for how we, we make sure that we get the best possible result for the communities in need. So it's important. I, I loved having that kind of hat on. Um, you don't always win, but when you do, it's it's great. Yeah, and I, I, I think what... I found so fascinating, even when we first met, was that there was this extremely powerful individual that I met, you know, all compacted into this tiny little (laughs) black, queer, (laughs) queer body, you know, living in Harlem, you know, and so... What ways has your perspective and even like your your queerness like informed the way you view design and your mm-hmm. space within it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah, it's 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 very funny, and especially for so for those listening, like I'm I have kind of a small stature, sort of unassuming type. For, you know, for years it could be in meetings and people would be like, well, you know who's in charge and like they, they never assume it's me. Uh, it's like I'm in charge. Um, but the um, uh, sort of stature aside, um, you know, the, the there's this uncomfortable relationship, I think, with power that uh, uh, people that are kind of in any kind of a marginalized community feel. Mm. Um, and, and that's definitely something I personally have, kind of felt and navigated, uh, for sure, you know, being, uh, on the outside or on the margin or kind of not, not valued is something that is, is sort of, it could be conspicuous, right? It could be very blatant or apparent when you're in a room, uh, with a lot of quote unquote powerful people, uh, and, and you're the only one of your kind. Um, and so that idea of, of kind of the margin is something being at the margin or marginalized and all of that, or these sort of structure kind of power terms um, that, that are sort of navigating. And, and instead of, of kind of accepting that, it's more like kind of finding the, 
the, the power ways to navigate those, those spaces and also to kind of find your, your community outside of those spaces um, to, to, yeah, just challenge that, that kind of feeling, right? The kind of the imposter feeling that can come sometimes creep into those spaces. And so I would say that the, the, uh, that idea of seeing and knowing the beauty in the community that you come from mm-hmm. is, is just always there and to just sort of register, <laughs> you know, that there's this other world too uh, and these other powers and spaces of power too. Um, and, and to be able to use that to be fully present, right. And authentic and grounded and say what you're going to say anyway. Um, you know, because I'm unassuming and and things, people are sometimes like shocked when I'll say something that's very, you know, direct or shady or something, you know, something like that, but it's like, it's done with intention and with purpose. Uh, and it could be quite effective, (laughs) And, you know, and, and, and people sort of know or realize or understand that you're real, right? Mm. Like, you know, I, you know, I'm like, I'm actually not here to be you, right? I'm, <laughs> I'm not here to operate the, the way that presumably I'm supposed to operate to advance because I'm not interested in that, right? Um, and so, you know, when that is sort of there and it becomes apparent, um, uh, it's, it, you can get some real work done. I'll, I'll say that. <laughs> wow. And, 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 and how did you find that voice? Uh, I mean, it's, I, I would say it took time uh, for sure. Um, uh, you know, I, I would say that I'm kind of personality wise, more, more of an introvert. And so uh, I, I'll be honest that I kind of just, you know, watched and learned and listened for, for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say kind of easily the first five formative years of, of, of my career, I was really just taking it all in, uh, to be honest. Um, and uh, I'll say that there was a, a one moment in, in life that was, was pretty pivotal. I had a, a really, really great mentor. Um, uh, I mentioned uh, her before, the, the walking blind through the city, that that. Moji Bartler's name. She was a, an Iranian architect and urban designer. Um, and she, she had cancer and, and passed. And it was, a, it was something that was a really um, difficult event uh, for me um, because she was like kind of an opposite personality. Like she was very like outspoken and uh, demanding even kind of personality, like op- opposite of me. Um, and when she passed... Um, I was sort of thinking uh, there was like a little cricket on my, on my corner kind of a thing that would be like, okay, like what would she do sometimes mm-hmm. <laughs> or what, or what would she say? Um, and, uh, I, I think it, it was kind of a switch that flipped that like, I have to be present and kind of, uh, uh, direct things and not always be kind of in the background or, or trying to do things kind of under, under the surface, which I would do, and you can be effective under the surface too, by the way. But um, uh, I, I, would, I really started saying and doing things more directly, more uh, sort of insistence on 
frankly, my power or the power of really trying to get the right done, thing done for a community, for a place. Mm. Um, because it's, it, 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 sometimes it, it really does take uh, a stance and a, a um, uh, aggressive, for lack of a better term, place. And obviously you can do it in a way that is respectful and nice and genuine to your personality, but, but it's, it's something that um, I, I think there was kind of a switch where I decided that this was how I needed to operate. Mm. I mean, Justin, your, your, um, I'll just say the manifestations of your practice versus your accomplishments. The manifestations of your practice are like so wide. I'm like, okay, so do we now talk about you building housing in Rwanda or do we <laughs> speak about you working with the Biden administration on the Commission for Fine Arts or do we speak you know, about philanthropy um, and even your own... Um, your own projects of, you know, Urban Patch mm -hmm. uh, back in Indianapolis and, um, you know, Black Space. I mean, there's so many ways to go, but I think it'd be really great to hear about this project in Rwanda, um, which I just, I'm like, okay, <laughs> Rwanda, <laughs> like, I don't, I'm just like, what? Hey, what? But, but it was, <laughs> but, but I also got to witness the building Right, the building process, um, and then also like the completion. So it's quite wild. Like, tell us about this project. Like, what was the genesis? And and I mean, I know there were challenges that were then met, you know, and then something came of it. Yeah, so it's it's definitely random, <laughs> and um, uh, yeah, people that meet me, it's like you sort of like unassuming, and then like I'll, I'll I I do lots of random things that don't sort of fit uh, when you first meet me. But um, the, the background to, to that story is that, um, you know, Urban Patch, which is a, a social enterprise that I have with my family, it's focused on kind of design, urbanism, development. Um, you know, that whole project was inspired by my grandfather's generation in Flanner House and the fact that these people that were doing innovating things to build their community. And so um, we had had uh, various projects in Indianapolis and, um, you know, to sort of build it at that scale wasn't something that we were able to accomplish. And I had a very good friend from, from grad school uh, who was working in Rwanda. Uh, and so I just went, she would say, you have to come visit Rwanda, you have to come visit Rwanda. Um, uh, but eventually, like, she sent me some pictures, and I was like, okay, it's pretty there, I'll go. So I visit her, um, and I, I was just really taken with, with the place, I, I admit. Um, uh, obviously, they've had an, an incredibly challenging history, even recent history, when you think it was, um, uh, you know, within our lifetime that the genocide side occurred. And uh, you go there, and there there is this nation, this sort of group of people that are actively working to solve their challenges and, and to, to be together, right? Like, it, like it's, it's palpable. Uh, beautiful, beautiful country. It's very clean, very green. Um, but they have these big challenges with housing. Uh, uh, it's the highest uh, population 
uh, density, like per square kilometer, anywhere in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, incredible growth since the genocide. So in the genocide, you know, around a million people killed. Um, uh, but since then, there's been significant population growth, and so they have huge challenges with building housing. And so this is work that my friend uh, Fatu Da is her name, um, that was there is engaged in, kind of from the policy side. And, and so they were asking people for different ideas, different approaches for how to build housing uh, and affordable housing, housing that people from Rwanda could afford specifically. So you're there and I'm like thinking, you know, well, what if this sort of model that I've been hoping to do uh, in, in the U.S. but not able to because it would be multi-millions of dollars, uh, let's try a version there. And so we uh, were like, sure, let's do this crazy thing. Uh, and figure out uh, how to build uh, affordable housing. And so what we did is we developed a model that uh, essentially wouldn't require any government subsidies because it would be uh, the first version of mixed income affordable housing. So in Rwanda, uh, even when they would build housing, it's tended to be um, segregated by, by income level, by class and cost, right? So... Yeah, very wealthy neighborhoods, like, you know, everybody's got the gate and the McMansion, and yet neighborhoods where they were building the equivalent of kind of public housing or low-cost housing concentrated in one neighborhood. And so we developed instead a model that said, well, we can build in desirable neighborhoods, neighborhoods that had things like sewers and uh, services, ac good access to kind of mobility and transportation to the work centers, those kinds of things we buy property there and build mixed income housing, right? So you have some units that are higher cost and some units that are affordable to Rwandans in one development, uh, which is common in other parts of the world, obviously. Um, you could get housing built in the neighborhoods that have those amenities, right? Instead of building the low-income housing in, in only in neighborhoods without those amenities. So that was a model, and we just did it. Uh, <laughs> he sort of tested it out. Uh, we got uh, some assistance from uh, uh, graduate students at Columbia uh, that look at things like social uh, enterprise modeling. And so we did a, a, a research visit to Rwanda and looked at things like property values, construction costs, et cetera, et cetera. And create, calibrating created a housing development model that allowed for mixed income housing. And we built a pilot project uh, in a neighborhood called Chibagabaga, uh, which is sort of a, a you know, more upper income area of, of Rwanda. So that was the concept. It's like, we're going to try it. Uh, and of course, uh, some things worked, some things didn't. The, the, we were sued at one point because we were building, you know, a, a mixed income building and have lower income people in a rich neighborhood. <laughs> and so the neighbors tried to so as they didn't win because everything we did was legal according to zoning and all those things, right? But, but you know, uh, you know, have you ever been sued in another country before? It's crazy. Um, but, but you know, we won, um, and now that that the project is done and built, and so the, the affordable units, right? You've got people, Rwandan people, uh, living in uh, this great neighborhood uh, with housing that they could afford. Um, and so after it's there, right, it's, it's fine, right? Like it's a nice looking building. 
you know, they wanted us to change the fence. So we were being nice and we changed our fence to match the other fences in the neighborhood, even though it doesn't go so well with our beautiful building, but whatever. But, um, but that housing is now part of that community, right? And people are living together uh, and people who otherwise wouldn't have been able to live in that neighborhood can. So it's great. And, you know, we finished out that model. Now we're looking for our next project. So we have to go and find sort of a model that you have to calibrate to find the land in the neighborhood that is well-serviced enough, right? That that, that you went to um, mix the, the kind of the, the income and demographic profile there. Um, but it's not so expensive that you can't afford to, mm. <laughs> to build affordable housing there. Um, but it's it's been great uh, in the process. Um, uh, we were intentional with many of our steps, right? So, um, you know, we could have done everything externally, but we had a, a local Rwandan architect, right, uh, that, that we brought on board to do all the permits and things of that nature. Even the geotechnical uh, company, um, you know, being intentional to work with the local Rwandan businesses so that the money that we're spending is is uh, recycling into their, their economy and their businesses. Um, that even included the bricks themselves. So uh, one of the uh, kind of cool things about the design, there are two different colors of brick that we use in the building. And the white brick in the building is from a woman-owned, a Rwandan woman-owned brick factory. Uh, and so like just knowing that that kind of material supply has an intention so that, you know, women-owned uh, enterprises are kind of receiving the benefit um, and it and it makes the building more beautiful, right? Mm. To have this um, uh, challenge, and you know, we couldn't afford to do the entire building with our brick because our bricks are more expensive because it's more kind of it's like almost like a boutique brick maker. Um, but but it makes the building more beautiful than it has this sort of variety of, of input and material in a way. Uh, so it's it's a, a wonderful um, project to be able to kind of push and test ideas, and uh, it has bigger impact beyond just our project. So uh, it was uh, uh, one cool thing like during the process. So the neighborhood we were in, and this is getting slow into the planner form uh, rabbit hole, sorry, but um, a big issue in planning and design in cities is um, uh, economic segregation. And one of the biggest tools of economic segregation uh, in planning in cities is something called single family zoning. Mm. Uh, so in the zoning maps of, of, of a lot of cities, they'll have designations for what kind of housing or what kind of buildings you can build in a particular neighborhood in the zoning. And there is a, a sort of a condition that, you know, happened in, in Europe and the U.S. as kind of a, dom- a dominant model to plan a city is that you would have a scale of different zoning districts, like a downtown commercial district with high rises, all the way down to a kind of more suburban neighborhood fabric that has what's called single family zoning. So on the land, you can only have one unit, dwelling unit, on that piece of land by zoning. Um, And that model was exported to the rest of the world, uh, including Rwanda. And so there's this city in Africa where there's low resource, uh, there's extreme topography, there are all these things. But the kind of the colonial way, this is how you build a good city, got mapped onto that place. And so they had, in a city with a housing crisis, large swaths of single-family zoning. 
so we complained and complained while we're building our condo building. We're building an eight-unit building on a one, on a single-family kind of neighborhood context. Um, and so the city happened to be going through a zoning change at the time, and we made the argument um, that they should not have single-family zoning. Hmm. <laughs> um, uh, and the uh, folks in the Rwandan community were sort of interested by that question, like why, like, why did they do that? And it was because it had been imported from places like America and Europe. And, and they were like, you know, in our culture, kind of traditionally, you wouldn't really have, because like there were families, right? They were living in a completely different model. Um, and so they, they processed it and they got rid of single family zoning for the entire city of Kigali. Whoa. <laughs> Wow. Catalyzed by this project. Catalyzed by, by our project. And, and in fact, when you go to, uh, it was funny, we, were, we went back uh, recently, and in another city, not Kigali, where we built our project, but another city in Rwanda, they had like a community session, and they're talking about zoning, and they had a picture of our building as like the example on their, their thing about how they wanted to build uh, uh, mixed income, like different types of housing, uh, because it's like a compound. It's essentially like a, con- a condominium is just a compound, right? Like it's a, a, a kind of social form of housing uh, that, that they're interested in. So it's, it's just cool and seeing that the, the work has kind of influence and impact even beyond your, your little project or school. That's amazing. And, and how does that relate to... Um you know, you have other projects that you're involved in, like, you know, Black Space, which is a collection of mm-hmm. Black architects and planners, um, you know, and and it's, I think this is really through the lens of impact, right? That that the ways in which you're working as, um, as a professional, right? You know, going to an actual job or working with, you know, a company, but then there's this other practice outside that is having a kind of impact at scale, right? Like in an international way, a policy way, but then also about, you know, providing, you know, opportunity and um, community building around black individuals thinking about the built environment. How, how do you relate to that? And, and what prompted the, the creation of black space? Yeah. I, and I mean, I, I always love the opportunity to talk about black space because it's, it's something that is sort of born out of, of just the need to connect and, and to work together. Um, uh, so for those that uh, may not be familiar, Black Space is a collective of Black urbanists, designers, artists, et cetera, uh, that we initially all met at the Black and Design Conference um, up at, at Harvard uh, GSD. And, you know, there are all these wonderful conversations about kind of the histories of Black communities and work that people were doing. And the... the uh, it, it was just sort of like a, a spark goes off. It says, okay, we can, this is a space that we can continue to have and to grow and to develop. And so folks in that, that conference just started connecting, meeting together, kind of in social spaces, at brunches, things of that nature, to just talk about a different impact, right? A different kind of practice. Uh, you know, some of us working in governments and nonprofits and private sectors or, or working independently, 
and and there is this drive for wanting to have a different impact mm. right? from from um, the work that folks were doing day to day by filling and being constrained by dominant models and practices again uh, you know they I keep saying this but it's like it's really something that we're just navigating all of the time almost and so this idea that like well we're going to build a different practice a different impact a different way of working was something that was there and so this is something I think you know I think we were all doing in our own individual ways right so different work kind of um, what I was doing and I think you know, the, um, at the same time, I'm kind of building out Urban Patch and my own kind of work is happening kind of in parallel with something like Black Space or now something like Dark Matter You uh, because it, it's the way to kind of channel what's the, the best way to shift things, mm. the best way to kind of see some progress that I cannot do on my own, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Um, and that... Um, uh, is a way to kind of have greater uh, sort of anchoring to like you know what what I want to do and what I don't want to do or what I'm good at and what I'm not good at and just accepting that instead of trying to do everything yourself um, probably not able to do all of it well <laughs> um, and and I you know I, I think having those different spaces has had this kind of I, I think it's like an empowering effect because you just sort of know that you know you can be whole in one space for a moment. Right. Mm-hmm. Like so there are times when I need to kind of really in a concerted way invest in black communities, black practices, black culture and black space is a space for that. Um, with Urban Patch, I have a you know I have a desire to like physically build and transform, right? And, like I'm, there's there's just that part of me, and so in that space, I'm able to to do things in that kind of direct, built, spatial, real kind of community way. And so you know, and 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 just having those different spaces of of practice and different communities of practice is so enriching, and I'm able to learn and kind of pivot from one to the other and take something I learn in one space and bring it to the other. Um, and that includes my own kind of, you know, job and role and, and practice that I have professionally. And, and you know, because I've had a, a kind of a relatively clear upward trajectory and kind of career profile, um, it's because, frankly, I'm operating in spaces of different impact mm. um, that I've been able to kind of learn and innovate and develop in, in one space and then bring it to another and progress and bring it to another and progress. Um, and it's, it's, um, it's something that I, I think people increasingly see in value that, um, you know, the kind of the quote unquote polymath, right. The person that is operating in different spaces is, is something that um, I think people are understanding and valuing that more and more. Yeah, I, I, it speaks so much to the power of not only diversity of um, you know peoples, but a diversity of thought and experience, and the ways in which Absolutely. they strengthen each other Absolutely. and allows for you know advanced pattern recognition across multiple fields, yes. right? And so that they actually come. It's a compounded learning. It's a compounded. Um, 
way of becoming, which then actually makes you uniquely qualified to do the thing, uh, to do the next thing, which is actually a beautiful segue in speaking about like the next thing, because you are now like the inaugural program officer of uh, humanities in place at the Mellon Foundation. So, you know, you know, moving from this place of, you know, urban design and planning, you know, doing your own projects as a builder, actually building spaces in New York City, like actual waterfronts and watersheds, um, you know, and working in city government, um, to now being on the side of philanthropy, which is very new. Um, and, you know, as, as, as we've, uh, had our, our dinners, I've noticed, uh, very, very tiring work. (laughs) (laughs) It's a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah, So could you tell us a little bit about like, what is the, I mean, this new program at Mellon and what does it mean to have a foundation, right? Like this really, um, putting real capital behind these projects. Yeah, thank you. The the it, it's still kind of a new kind of thing, a new space for me. Um, so I've been the foundation like a year, year and three quarters. Um, uh, and a, a quick kind of anecdote is that um, you know when I was at the end of the my last role, end of the administration, and thinking about what the next step and the next place would be, it was, you know, do I continue kind of on this track and path or do I do something different? And I was kind of called and, and kind of recruited into philanthropy. And initially I didn't want to do it, I'll be honest. Mm. Um, because I had always worked in, in government. I always worked kind of with a direct responsibility to the people. And obviously a lot of good things happen in philanthropy. Um, but by and large, for the most part, it's like the exact opposite, right? Philanthropy, like there's some small number of people that have power and resources and you sort of execute their, their will, right? Um, and so for me, coming from government, for director of public, that was like, you know, diametrically opposite. Um, but in the conversations with uh Folks at Mellon, including leadership Mellon's led by uh, Elizabeth Alexander, um, and I really was sort of taken that leadership was completely purposeful in saying that their work needed to better directly connect to people and communities, their places, their stories. Mm. And that, and that they were, that the foundation leadership kind of like, you know, as a part of their work was going to move away from only focused on kind of the conventional institutions, right? The university, the, the well-established arts and cultural organization, whether it's a museum or a symphony, right? Like that, that was kind of the association that I had with, with that type of philanthropy, but there was a, a very kind of clear, and focused and demonstrated commitment to this reframing of, of what many people would call social justice work, that who was benefiting from the work, how it was being done, was seeing an active shift. And so that was what convinced me that um, Melon was worth it. And frankly, because it, it was a new 
space, a new program, that I would have enough uh, ability to kind of shape that uh, and kind of set the tone for how that work would happen so that it felt um, direct, for lack of a better term, that, that the resources and the approaches would, would, would go to the actual places. And because the program is called Humanities in Place, like it's about place, I was like, okay, that's enough for me to, to, to go into it. So I, I make the shift and, um, you know, it's, it's funny. It's like, so Mountains of, you know, an esteemed large institution um, is existing, but it was literally just me. <laughs> and it's like, uh, create a new program, start things off. And so it's like being a startup within a big established institution. Mm. And so, um, uh, that, that was kind of an interesting process, but what was great is that we were, for example, able to build a team that was flatter in structure, for example. Um, so when we're working with communities or doing our research and kind of processing things, like it's, it's sort of a team effort uh, that allows for more conversation, more inquiry, um, more sort of, like you said, kind of having different perspectives as an important kind of thing, you know, multifocal multi-perspective approaches to work is something that we were able to build into our practice mm. within the foundation. And so we've been able to support uh, by now 70, over 70 organizations uh, across the United States, a very wide range of, of place and community contexts, wide range of stories, wide range of, of different types of people um, doing the work that include things like heritage uh, spaces, like preserving important um, uh, kind of places that contribute to our history, but also can contribute to our future, right, by way of how they're reimagined and how they're kind of activated and programmed by, by artists and community members. Um, you know, we're able to do work that is supporting new institutions and new frameworks. Um, the Black Reconstruction Collective, the, the group of Tim Black Architects that recently had the show at, at, at the MoMA formed a collective and we were able to provide support for that organization to uh, really develop and advance their work, but also to continue to support black artists and black designers in reimagining and rethinking our, our spaces, uh, whether historical or, or contemporary or future. So like we're, we're able to directly provide resources to the places and the ideas that are there. Um, and we were able to kind of have conversations about what's the most effective way for that work to happen. Sometimes it's very direct, like something needs to be built, right? Something needs to be saved. Um, but sometimes it's that, you know, we need a process in our community mm. to talk about our history and, and the harm, but also the positive and, and the honorable. Right. And, and so we're funding that kind of work, too, where people are uh, investing in their archives, uh, where people are uh, having conversations about what is social justice and equitable development look like in their community today. Mm -hmm. um, and in some cases where we are supporting kind of institutions, uh, we're directly supporting historically black colleges and universities, mm. for example, uh, or Asian American uh, organization. There's one called Angel Island, uh, where they're talking about the histories of Asian Americans and their kind of social 
uh, and and cultural uh, uh, sort of legacies that have shaped America, right? But are excluded uh, from the American story. Uh, so it's it's a wonderful um, space and opportunity to be able to provide resources. Um, you know, we've granted over seventy million dollars so far uh, across all these different organizations, um, and it's it's just wonderful to be in a position to have an, an infrastructure for directing resources. One thing I'll, I'll mention, um, we talked about Planner House earlier and, and the, um, you know, the work that they were doing. That work was supported by philanthropy as well. Mm. Um, there's a, back in some of the records, there was a, you know, a, a, it was in my records, a, a check for $100,000 written by uh, Eli Lilly Jr., at the time, which is today the, the Lilly Endowment uh, is, is the Eli Lilly money in Indianapolis. And so it's like recognizing that philanthropy did have, you know, a, a role in, in beautiful, wonderful things happening uh, that I had as a very tangible example. And so that, that was something that I kind of take with me and hold with me uh, as we're having these conversations and thinking about what we resource, because it, it truly can... Uh, make a difference in in these communities. Yeah, that's uh, incredible to even consider. Um, you know, just the the legacy um, and the ways in which philanthropy has and can aid. Can. Uh, yeah, it could do it could do the exact opposite. Yeah, too. exactly. <laughs> and, and you know, and I think you know, you know, as we as we um, kind of double tap on this. Um, idea of philanthropy and and kind of wind down like you know because philanthropy is also a system right built within oh, yeah. an existing oh, yeah. framework Ooh. right so Ooh, so the the, yes. the issues that <laughs> we deal with on the street creep up you know what I mean like they exist within these systems as well this uh this by design. Uh, levels of access or inability to access the resources with which to um, rethink and rebuild, you know, our communities um, and our world, you know, as 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 those uh, on the margin or you know, black and brown individuals. Like, what ways can we think about and get access to? philanthropic dollars, right? Because there's so many mechanisms in place to keep you out, right? To to block that. But, you know, how can we uh, think about philanthropy and best prepare for, you know, access to this capital and resource? Yeah, that's a great question because the... the you're, you're exactly spot on. Like it, it is a system too. It is, you know, I'll, I'll go as far as say it's a, a white supremacist system. Um, that is kind of a, a, it's like a release valve for capitalism, mm. right? It's like the, for the fact that it exists is part of the rationale for capitalism sort of continuing, right? Like, okay, yeah, people aggregate huge amounts of of wealth and that's inequality and say, oh, but there's this mechanism by which, you know, it gets redirected, right? Um, it's sort of, it's a form of, of preservation for that system. So the, 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 the system that it creates is still one that is 
uh, an aggregator, right? Like it's, it's, it's meant to be something that distributes, but it largely func- functions <laughs> to like, you know, it's, it's the constantly doing this, right? Um, um, and the, you know, the, the pressure and, you know, the system feeding itself is, is a whole industry. And so, you know, there are organizations that have people that is their full-time job to get money from philanthropy, right? You know, guess what the composition and mission of those organizations that have full-time development people looks like, right? right? Mm-hmm. They tend to be wider and or more established institutions and organizations and all the people that have a greater need for the resources, right? They don't have the mechanism to do that, right? I get calls all the time. Oh, let's meet up. Let's meet up. And I'm in New York. Let's meet up. Right. It's like, okay, if you have the resources to come to New York and, and have coffee with people, <laughs> right? Like you're, you're at a certain kind of stage of privilege and power that a lot of people that are the communities and places and people we actually want to support, they're not happening on New York and dropping by mm-hmm. to have coffee with people at the Mellon Foundation, right? So like acknowledging that system is, is there. And so we actively try um, to break that down. But one thing I'll say is that, um, you know, going after philanthropic dollars is something that happens largely in networks and kind of spaces that, that you're um, putting yourself in and, and, forcing yourself into because very often they're closed spaces uh, that you may not even know those spaces exist. So it's, it, it, it's difficult, but you have to kind of understand and navigate, like how do you get into those networks and connections uh, through a lot of organizations, there are events and convenings that happen all the time. I mean, when, when we met at, at, at uh, idea city, right. That's kind of one of those t- kinds of spaces that that those connections and interactions um, start getting made in, and, and they're very kind of personal uh, to a degree. Um, the other thing I'll say is that philanthropy is starting to open up a bit more. And if you go to like organizations' websites, there'll be um, uh, contacts and different programs. You see, okay, this organization funds a lot of the work that I do, and I'm interested in it. It it does work sometimes to kind of just reach out directly to the, the program, what's called the program officer, program staff that's working on that and to see if you can have a, a, a conversation. Uh, and obviously more and more because of Zoom and everything, like people are a little more giving of their time in person meetings. So that's a mechanism. And then there are um, for folks that are, you know, not, you're not a nonprofit organization, you're not incorporated, right? You don't have all these structures in place. Uh, there are organizations uh, called fiscal sponsors uh, mm-hmm. that you can connect to and, and see. Uh, Fractured Atlas is one that, that folks use a lot um, for arts and performance. There's something called Producer Hub. And so there are these organizations that can help you, even if you're not set up and structured as a nonprofit entity, you can work with them uh, to uh it, it sort of support to be able to accept philanthropic dollars. Uh, and then obviously a lot of people, um, uh, you know, just try to, to 
do things, right? Like just sort of test it out, like have your proof, your first proof of concept. That's the key, right? Have a good proof of concept, something tangible that you can show and demonstrate your ideas. And when you have that, then you're in a really good position to kind of, you know, socialize your idea, right? Like get, get the word out, see if there's interest and in, in support and, and kind of tap into some of those networks. So multiple ways uh, to do it. Um, for those, if you know, those of you listening, if any of you are in kind of place space, kind of place and heritage or place culture or arts in place, if you're interested in that, go to the Mellon Foundation website, look up Humanities in Place and, and drop us a line. Like on the website, there'll be a section for inquiries there. Um, and, and I'll say in our grant making, um, you know, a good number of our grants have been to people that have just reached out on the website and said, here's my idea. Um, one, one out of four, in fact, of our grants uh, is someone that, you know, <laughs> just shot their shot. Um, and, and you know, that, that can happen too. It's, it's honestly not a, a ton of philanthropy happens that way. We re- our number is pretty high because we're intentionally opening things up. Um, but, but that is something that is possible too. Um, and you just find the, the, the foundation or the organization that is supporting the kind of work that, that you want to do. That is the formula, Justin. That is so good. And, you know, even in this moment, I have to give a disclaimer that the Mellon Foundation has helped and funded the Institute of Black Imagination is a big part. I mean, a direct what we're doing right now is a direct result of the philanthropic dollars of the Mellon Foundation. Um, shout out to Deb and those on the team. There yes, is no conflict yes. of interest here. That happened before yes, Justin yes, was yes. there. Um, yes, yes. But and I'll, and I'll just quickly say, if you go to the Mellon website and just look up the organizations Mellon has been funding, like there, there are a lot of cool, wonderful organizations. And it's like a network of people doing incredible, incredible things. Uh, that the foundation is supporting at the moment. Yeah, it's and and you know, from for listeners on on my end, you know, there were so many grants. Actually, this podcast is a direct result of me getting uh, denied um, grants, right? Like you know, applying for creative capital, applying for this, and getting shortlisted, but not quite getting there. Um, and so I just wanted to do something, right? I was like, I don't want to wait mm-hmm. for permission. What can I do with what I have yeah. now? And I was like, I can afford some microphones and I can begin <laughs> at least having this conversation, right? And so, but so also thinking about this process as a way of perfecting your idea. And so yes. I use a lot of applications as a way to prompt questions that I'm not even thinking about. You know, you'll do an application Absolutely. and it'll ask, you know, how do you plan on engaging your local community in this idea? And that was not something I was thinking about, but I'm like, that's a good idea. And so then I have to, what? Lean into my imagination. I have to dream. How could this actually be a direct service to the local community, even though there's this other thing that I'm thinking about? And so thinking about the application process as as really a collaborative effort, even before you reach out to the grant, the grantor uh, as a way of shaping 
the vision that you have in your head because we only know what we know. So we're only asking the questions we know to ask. And so to have that kind of back and forth is actually a way of even just becoming, right? Becoming and and creating the thing that you want to do. Um, you know, Justin, this has been such a rich conversation. You are just a, a a wealth and a storehouse of of um of love really you know if i want to get down to it that's the truth and so before i ask my last question i just want to acknowledge like the tireless and i know that tireless work that you do at every level i i for me i find you superhuman i find it almost impossible that you're able to accomplish all of the things that you do without drinking coffee um you know and that you know (laughs) and it's always transparency it's always openness it's always this is how you do it this is how you create you know a financial model of building you know, an urban redevelopment project in your hometown. Like you just like, here's the chart. Here's my Excel sheet. These are what the houses cost. Like, and that is the kind of not only friendship and relationship, but the kind of lens on world building and community that we need. We just need the information, right? And then people can then make of it what they want. And so, um, and and I know it comes at a great level of, I think personal sacrifice and is really an act of of service. But what's incredible is that you are also doing the work, right? Like it is not just theoretical. It is not just yeah, yeah. about you know <laughs> a, a conference, you know, at an Ivy right, League right, institution. Right. But it is work that is actually hitting the streets um, and that people can touch and feel and experience and. It's a way of mark making and a way of impact that will last way beyond, you know, your physical manifestation in this space time reality. Um, And so thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that tireless work. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. No, and I I always love being in conversation with you because you you have that sort of, you know, space of translation and sharing, I think, is a space that you're kind of constantly creating and making that space. Um, and, and yeah, and I do try to kind of have this combination of both kind of mark making, um, and, and kind of sharing the, you know, I mentioned earlier, you know, project I worked at the city for a long time was a whole neighborhood development. And like one of my favorite, favorite things in the world to do is just go there and sit in a place and to see like life happening, mm. you know, it's like just all these people's lives and knowing that like, you know, helped create a space that, that life is happening. Within, mm. right? um, uh, you know, lives not connected to mine at all uh, and lives that are connected to mine. And it's, it's, it's something that I, I love and it does take kind of sharing and communication. So thank you for this <laughs> uh, platform as to the black imagination is a space for for sharing and a, and a space uh, for for the possible and and for life. So, thank you for creating that. Oh my God, absolutely, my pleasure. Um, and so, Justin, uh, what is the world that you imagine for the future? What's the world you're building? Hmm. So. I'll say this, the, um, um, a book I appreciate a lot by um, uh, 
Harden Negri, Michael Harden, Antonio Negri, called The Multitude. And there's this kind of idea that there are all of us, <laughs> right? Like literally like the billions of people on, on, on the planet all have kind of a, a, a value and a place in a, in a space. And I, I think for a lot of different reasons, the, the world as it's sort of set up and the world as it's built um, really doesn't fully acknowledge that, mm. that, there, that, there, that there really uh, is a responsibility to all of us. And so when I, I say that, it, it, it's funny. So like there, it's like the, the, the uh, what's called the BIPOC conversation, right? Like when you explicitly start listing something out, it's either someone is left out or someone's not included. By saying all of us, that allows you actually the freedom and space to say for me, right? Or mm. for my people, right? Because very often, right, like you'll, you'll, you'll end up not creating space for yourself and to be whole uh, if you're concerned with a particular uh, uh, set. And so when, when you give permission to make a space for all of us, you give permission to make a space for yourself in the world. Um, and so, that, you know, that's what I'm sort of constantly navigating. So, you know, in our professional practice, we say things like equity and inclusion and accessibility of spaces and universal spaces and all of these things. Um, you know, it, it takes a lot of work to kind of navigate that and to be genuine about it and everything. But but I really do want to have a world that, that creates that sort of combination um, that, that allows you to be full and present and happy and complete um, in a way in your space and in your environment. Yeah, and ultimately just creating a space for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> that is a beautiful place to end. Justin, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for this beautiful conversation. I cannot wait to actually go back and listen to it. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, thank you. Hopefully, I didn't burn on uh, um, too much. But <laughs> oh no, 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 no! It was perfect. Justin is simply one of my favorite people in the world. Speaking of favorite people, we love this community and want to continue to expand it and make sure that people know about all the black genius we have over here at the Institute of Black Imagination. And what better way to do that than to hear it? from you. When you leave a review, it helps others find us. So take a moment and be sure to leave a review over on Apple Podcast and share this episode with a friend. You can drop some of your thoughts with us over on Instagram and Twitter at Black Imagination. And be sure to check out this conversation and others at blackimagination.com. And you can watch this and other episodes on our new YouTube channel, the Institute of Black Imagination. As our sister Bell Hook said, if we want a beloved community, we must stand for justice. Stay curious and keep dreaming.